Welcome to Heart to Heart with Michael, featuring your host, Michael Lieben. Our program is designed to empower the bereaved community with information and stories from those who have suffered the most terrible loss. Michael himself, a bereaved father, will be meeting with people from around the world to share and to draw hope from their experiences. And now, here is Michael Lieben. Welcome to the 10th episode of the first season of Heart to Heart with Michael, a program for the bereaved community. Our purpose is to empower members of our community with resources, support, and advocacy information. Today's show is Laughing Through the Tears, and here with us to talk about it is our guest, Don Fuller. Dawn, best known as Canada's Laugh Lady, is a registered clinical counselor with 37 years counseling experience in a variety of areas. She's also the author of the book, The Heart of Joshua, and the mother of a child born with serious medical problems. While learning to traverse the bureaucracy of the medical world, she advocated for her child's health care and even his life. She has done the same for other parents of chronically ill children through her laugh therapy seminars. Her book about these experiences, The Heart of Joshua, was published in 1987 by the University of Toronto Press. As a stand-up comic, she has appeared at Yuck Yuck's Comedy Club and Laugh Lines. And for the past 20 years, Dawn's presentation and media appearances on the positive power of humor have influenced the lives of thousands of people. Dawn, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you for having me. I understand that your son was born with a heart defect. Can you tell us what he has and how you learned of it? And were there other medical issues at the time that affected his health? Joshua was born in Prince Rupert, British Columbia, which is a pretty isolated community in northern British Columbia. And um, when he was born, something just didn't seem right to me at the beginning. The, the, the delivery was very difficult, and that in and of itself didn't mean anything. But one of the things I saw was... He was blue in his face, not like a really dark blue, but a kind of, if you think of skim milk, that kind of watery blue. And I kept saying to the people at the hospital, I think there's something wrong. And they kept saying, oh, he just has gas. The problem I ran into was that the day after he was delivered, our doctor left on vacation. So I was in the hospital for about nine days because the delivery had been so bad. And when I got home and started taking care of him, some things just didn't seem right because one of the things was his, I never had changed his diaper. His diaper never got wet. He Hmm. would sleep for hours and hours without waking up. And the doctor that was taking my, our doctor's place was saying, Dawn, you're being an overly anxious mother. Quit worrying about him. This is normal for mothers to be nervous when they have their first child. But he (laughs) continued to lose weight. And, I took him to several different doctors. They all told me I was just being an overly worried mother. Mm. When our GP got back about two weeks later, I called him up and said, I think you need to see Joshua today. Like, there's something wrong. Our doctor saw him and said, you're right, there is something wrong with his heart. And Prince Rupert did not have a pediatrician full-time there, but luckily one had flown in to do a few days of service there. And my doctor referred him to this pediatrician. The pediatrician immediately said, he's got to get down to Vancouver. We have to do surgery on him or he's not going to live. So we flew from Prince Rupert down to Vancouver. And at the age of seven weeks, he underwent his first heart surgery. And that was for coarctation of the aorta. He also was diagnosed with um, a a ventricular septal defect, an atrial septal defect, a distorted aortic valve, and a bicuspid instead of a tricuspid mitral valve. Uh, 
the first when you know when when that happened, our world was just turned upside down. I had had three miscarriages prior to Josh being born, and people say things like, "Well, there was a reason you miscarried because there's something wrong with the baby." So when Josh was born, of course there could be nothing wrong with him because he was born. Yeah, I didn't right. carry him. We were, so, we were exactly in that same place, by the way. Three. And oh, then, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you know exactly what I'm talking about then. And 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 you know, we, to have this happen, and not only were we flying down to Vancouver, we we have knew absolutely nobody in Vancouver, and my husband and I are both from the United States. So we did not have a support system in place as far as family was concerned to help us navigate this in any way whatsoever. Um, I remember that my first reaction, my husband and I are not drinkers at all, but we got home from our the pediatrician's appointment to pack up and go. And I remember, because it was so out of character for me, sitting down and drinking two glasses of uh, vodka and tonic, like very quickly, and that's not me. I know I normally don't react to stress that way. One of the things I know in my heart is that moms know. Parents, well, moms for sure. And the, you know, the thousands of people I've talked to over the years, the mother always knew that there was something wrong. And I mean, one of the things that was really fat, what I found really kind of horrifying was when we got down to Vancouver and people were listening to Josh's heart because he was in congestive heart failure. And, and what they were saying was, are you telling me a medical professional listened to his heart and they couldn't tell there was something wrong? And so they trained me how to listen to the heart. And, I mean, I can, I'm not a medical person. I could tell just by listening through a stethoscope that it didn't sound right. So there were, there were about three or four doctors that saw him in Prince Rupert in the time I was trying to get help for him, and none of them picked up on that. And that's what's really scary. It's scary because these are this is a pretty rare condition to have all these things going on at once. I mean, mm-hmm. the ASD and the VSD; those are the noisemakers. Those are the things that you would hear. On the other hand, having one of them is fairly is not is not uncommon. It's not always you know life threatening, and so maybe they heard it and said, "Yeah, well, that's common," or maybe they heard it and didn't bother them, yeah. or maybe maybe they just weren't that good. You really can't know. And and you're right, and you're lucky. Moms really do know stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the DNA. I think moms know stuff. You were very lucky and you're very strong to have done that, to have advocated so well. I'm pretty tenacious, so good thing I am. <laughs> so what, what did they eventually have you go through with him? You know, very quickly in about a minute. Well, well, what, well, he had the coartation and um, he was doing okay and not great, but he was doing okay. And they said, well, you can go back up to Prince Rupert and we'll you know, come back down in three months for another appointment. And I didn't feel comfortable leaving. I didn't think he was okay. But we went back because we listened to the doctors, and we got back up to Prince Rupert. He took a turn for the worst. Two days later, we're back in Vancouver. So the first six months of his life, Josh spent in Vancouver General Hospital. He had four surgeries during that time, and they, they, you know, a couple of times came out of the operating room to prepare us because they said they didn't think he was going to make it. And he he rallied. And the thing was, the whole time I was there, I you know I didn't leave his side. My husband was flying back and forth from Prince Rupert to Vancouver as he could for work, and I just I stayed there. And when Josh was six months old, they sent him home. And in the first 
two and a half years of his life. I think the longest he was out of the hospital was six weeks. Oh my gosh! And he he was seen by a, um, a health nurse that dropped by every single day. He was seen by our GP every week. I mean, we had incredible medical support up in Prince Rupert, and we were fairly new to the to Prince Rupert because we had moved there from Dallas, Texas, and we found out that there was this incredible community of caring people that just were there supporting us through all of that. So, you know, one of the silver linings out of this was we found out, you know, that there's some really wonderful people in the world when you're going through adversity. I know I don't want to date this program, but anybody who's watching the news now sees that happening right now in Texas. And I'm sorry, we're going to have to take a hard break here. But when we get back, we'll be talking with Dawn about the unique approach that she and her husband used to face Joshua's diagnosis and its complications. We will also discuss how she and her spouse brought something positive out of their struggle and how they've used that to help others in a distinctive way. Hi, I'm John Montez of NBC's hit acapella show, The Sing-Off. In acapella music, it takes a team to create a sound that many will enjoy, just like it'll take a team to help my good friend Miles Schweitzer, an HLHS survivor. Let's help Miles fulfill his dream and make a big enough sound to bring awareness to congenital heart disease. Please visit him at GoFundMe.com backwards slash The Miles Project. Miles with the Y. Again, that's GoFundMe.com The Miles Project. This is for Miles. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Michael. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our program, please send an email to Michael Lieben at michael at hearttoheartwithmichael.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Michael. Welcome back to Heart to Heart with Michael. Today we're talking with Dawn Fuller, mother to Joshua and author of the book, The Heart of Joshua. Dawn shared with us in the first segment about how she and her husband Chuck first learned of Joshua's diagnosis and how they decided what their reactions to this information would be. Now we turn our attention to the therapeutic impact of humor and how Don and Chuck use their sense of humor to overcome adversity. Don, why are you the laugh lady of Canada? How'd that happen? One of the things that one we knew with Joshua was when we when we brought him home, the doctors told us they didn't think he was going to live to his first birthday. And if he did, then maybe he had a fighting chance to make it. And, and so Chuck and I had to, you know, face, some, you know, as, as parents of any child who's seriously ill has to, how are you going to allow this news to affect you? And one of the things that we really wanted to do was not focus on, oh, my gosh, he's going to die or he's not going to live very long. What we wanted to focus on is however long he lives, it has to be a quality life. And so we made a really conscious decision to not sweat a lot of the stuff that I find other parents sweat about. Uh, we just wanted to make each day as positive as we possibly could. And over time, that kind of snowballed into, I could be doing workshops on this, you know, like the whole thing around the mind-body connection. We know from books like Norman Cousins' Anatomy of an Illness, uh, from a patient's point of view, how much what you're thinking about your life can impact your whole body. And so I started doing some research on it and started doing workshops just kind of locally for different groups. And pretty soon the word started to spread and all of a sudden I had this this profession where I was doing workshop presentations to groups all over the world for a variety of different reasons. A lot of them were health-based uh, workshops. 
And people started calling me the Laugh Lady. I never called myself the Laugh Lady. It was other <laughs> people calling me the Laugh Lady that kind of got me that, that nickname. What goes on inside one of those workshops? Give us well, a little with, with the workshops, what I do is I talk about the psychological and the physical benefits of laughter. And, you know, a lot of people think that you have to be happy in order to laugh, when in fact you have to laugh in order to be happy. Because oh. what happens when you start laughing is you start stimulating the brain. And actually, just if, if you stand up for a minute, Michael, and then look up and look up at the ceiling and smile as broadly as you can possibly smile. So when you do that, what it actually does to the capillaries in the brain is it expands them, it cools off the blood, and creates a slightly euphoric feeling, regardless of how you may have been feeling a few moments before. So we know that there's very much a mind-body connection, and the laughter helps to bring about the serotonin levels and to make people feel happier than they were before that. And sometimes, I mean, you know, in the, believe me, in the midst of all the horror I was going through, I didn't sit there and think of this as my wonderful opportunity for learning. And I didn't sit there and laugh all through things. But even in the hospital, I could find things to laugh about because, because that's just, if I didn't, I just believe that if we didn't have joy in our lives, our son wouldn't think that his life was joyful enough to be there. I, I have to add, add something here because a lot of people tell me, because I also tend to laugh where it would be considered a, not a good idea. And uh, people say, how can you laugh? You know, what's going on? I said, if I don't laugh, I'll die. Mm-hmm. And I just know that. I just know I that. I know, yeah, I agree. And, and you know, I, and, 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 the, and the intention here isn't to make people feel badly if they, if they didn't laugh enough or whatever, but it's, but it's something to think about moving forward is that, that, you know, my gosh, we know that there's enough misery in the world to begin with. And, and yet there's some kind of a stigma that if people show joy, there must be something wrong with them. I think the other way is the real thing is that I totally you know, agree with people you, yeah. are miserable all the time. Like, like, what's that? You know, like that's that's not helping you live a life that you would want to live and, and you would want your children to live. And I wanted our son to have every resource available to him to fight what he was fighting. There were so many times when uh, I, I needed to laugh, I needed to let something go, even if it seemed to somebody else inappropriate. There's always something, even if it's just something that's incongruous, there's always something that will get you going and you will feel better and you will have that experience. And then you find also that it's um, it's contagious. Am I right? Yes. Yeah, and, and the thing about laughter is that laughter is a catharsis. It's a release. So, you know, when you cry, you release. Mm-hmm. When you laugh, when you, re- you release. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you throw up, you release. You know, mm-hmm. people are much more, more receptive to you if you're laughing than if you're vomiting on them, I find. I, this is probably true. Probably. <laughs> I actually have not tried that, but it's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> so what are the benefits that you get from learning about laugh, laughing in the face of adversity? It was some real benefits, something people can take home with them. Well, you know, the thing is, is that when you laugh, what you do is you actually get some of the benefits of jogging without having to go out and buy the outfit. Because Great. what it does is it, it, it brings your blood pressure up above normal and then it drops it below normal. Another thing, and this is a really big one, is that, that with a lot of people um, under stress, they quit breathing properly. 
And True. a lot of people end up in, in hospital emergency rooms because they're not breathing properly and mm-hmm. they're hyperventilating. And what laughter does is it makes you expel air at about 70 miles an hour and then you inhale at about you know full lung capacity. So what you're doing is you're getting your respiratory system geared down so that that anxiety isn't so revved up that you, that you end up in a hospital emergency room. Do people um, know that generally? Is that, is, that, is that a well-known thing? Because that's amazing. Yeah, it seems so yeah, simple. It yeah, it's very simple. Well, as a clinical counselor, I do a lot of work with people who suffer from anxiety. And mm-hmm. one of the things I'll have them do is do breathing exercises because what happens when you, when you get like what's called an amygdala hijack. And the amygdala is the uh, kind of reactive part of our brain. And what happens when people are under high stress and anxiety, the amygdalas, all it knows is that there's not enough oxygen up here, there's too much carbon dioxide, something outside of me is wrong and I need to react, which hyperventilate, or you start hyperventilating and it revs up that anxiety more and the adrenaline's running through your body and then the anxiety, it's like being on a hamster wheel you can't get off of. And so by doing laughing or doing the breathing, that's actually going to inflate your lungs, going to get rid of the oxygen, going to get, or oxygenate your brain and get rid of the carbon dioxide. That's what's going to, going to help people to calm themselves in a way that will help them deal with whatever they're having to deal with. I wish that were more widely known because it seems like such a simple idea. And it is, yeah. We could all, we've all been there. We've all been there. I mean, whatever the anxiety is, whether it's economic or, or physical or health or whatever, laughing is really very important and joy is really very important. And when you're talking about how you were going to set the future for Josh, I was thinking that when Liel was born, my daughter, we said one thing. I remember talking to my wife about it, I think the, the third, fourth day. And I said, we're just going to raise her as normally as we can. Um, and we're going to concentrate on being normal and keeping things as normal as possible and not worry yeah. about all those other little things. And then when she had her first cold and I called the doctor in a panic, he said, all babies get colds, relax. And from that moment on, that's just where we went. And we always found something to be happy about and always found something to, to keep with us that was going to just pull us over to the next to the next moment. In our final segment, I would love to hear more about another method of coping that you've been trained in and the results that you've seen. Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home tonight forever. Heart to Heart with Michael is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more.
You are listening to Heart to Heart with Michael. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on Michael's program, please email him at michael at hearttoheartwithmichael.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Heart to Heart with Michael, a program for the bereaved. We've been talking with therapist and comedian Don Fuller. Don and her husband Chuck have approached what was devastating news with strength, humility, and above all, I think, humor. We're going to focus next on the therapy techniques that Don has become trained in to help others survive trauma. So why don't you give us a brief overlook of some of the things that we can do? The number one thing I would say with grief is don't anybody else let anybody else tell you what the timetable is for grief. Because one of the things I know from, you know, many years of work and my own personal experiences is there is no time frame for grief. And a lot of times people think there should be. And, um, you know, having a child that's seriously ill changes, changes everything in your life. Yeah. And losing a child changes it that much more. And what's really important for people to understand is that Telling their story to other people is one of the most therapeutic things they can do. If they can find an organization or a group that they can go and talk to, seeing a counselor is really helpful, and and there's lots of different counseling modalities that you can use um, for grief. Two of the ones that I use around trauma and grief are uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and EMDR and cognitive behavioral therapy summed up in two sentences is, what do you say when you talk to yourself? What are you thinking, in other words? Mm-hmm. And, you, and you don't have to believe everything you think. And that's a really hard one to learn because people think if they think something, it makes it true automatically, which is not, is not necessarily true. So it's challenging some of those beliefs because one of the things you run, I ran into a lot with parents who have lost children is, there's the what if thing. What if I had done this? What if I had done the guilt that's just... Never ever do that. No matter how much you've advocated for that child, no matter how much you have done for that child, and you lose the child, your, your guilt is a companion that stays with you. And guilt isn't helpful because I remember in the hospital one day I was saying to nurse, well, I did this when I was pregnant, I did this one. You think that's what caused Josh's heart problems? And she took me by the shoulders and she said, Dawn, don't do this to yourself. It's not helpful to you and it's not helpful to your son. And that was really a powerful statement because I realized I was using so much energy feeling guilty, I wasn't using energy to help my son in any way I needed to help him. So that's that's one piece of it. And then another thing I do is something called EMDR, it's eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And this has been found to be really helpful for people who have gone through trauma. And the best way for me to describe the process is that when you start thinking about trauma that you've been through, uh, regardless of what that trauma might be, the way that people normally react to it, at least in the beginning, is to it's like they're still in the trauma. It's kind of like when soldiers come back from war and they used to call it shell shock because they kept re- responding to the world. It's the, it's the whole thing about post-traumatic stress syndrome that we mm-hmm. now recognize today. What, what EMDR does is it helps people almost refile that trauma because it, it helps them go from being reactive to the trauma, so being in the middle of the trauma. And so if you think about being in a movie theater, 
you're in the movie prior to having EMDR. And so you're reacting like the actors would react to the movie. Afterwards, you're in the audience watching it. So it's not like you forget what happened, but you don't have that debilitating trauma response that you had prior to having EMDR. Oh. It, it removes you, pulls you outside of the trauma to look at it differently? Right. right. That's exactly what it does. And I wish I had known that. Yeah, it's, EMDR is a fairly new therapy. It was started by a woman named Francine Shapiro in California, I think maybe about 20 years ago. So it's, you know, on the whole therapy spectrum, it's one of the newer ones. But it it's really helps people a lot with trauma. Is that something you can do on your own? Is it something, do, you, do you need a guide for that? or? Oh, you have to see a counselor for that, yeah. Because, yeah, okay. I mean, I have a lot of training to do it. So how else can we deliver uh, therapy? How does it get there? Do they have to be face-to-face? For some people, doing it in a face-to-face setting is best. But there's also people that live in isolated areas where they may not be able to access counseling as easily, which is why it's really exciting that, that there's other venues available like the telephone or doing it through a computer that uh, you know wasn't available 30 years ago. You know, I'm a you know I'm obviously a big believer in in journaling because, and that's what the hard Joshua came from was me journaling what was going on in my life with Josh. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest tributes you can pay to a child that has passed on is that you live life to its fullest because that's honoring that child's life. Mm-hmm. And um Finding ways that you can do that is really important. And for different people, it's going to be different things. Um, you know, for some people, it may be traveling. When The Heart of Joshua came out, I was getting phone calls from people all over Canada and the United States talking, wanting to talk to me because they felt like I was the only person in their lives, and I wasn't even really a person in their lives, who understood what they were going through which in a way was, was nice that they felt they could call me and talk to me, but it made me really sad that they didn't think they could talk to their doctors, they didn't think they could talk to other family members or, you know, whatever. And this happened a lot over the, the first few years after the book came out. Well, at the risk of making you sad, how can people reach out to you who really want to? They can go to the website, yaletherapygroup.com. That's Y-A-L-E-T-H-E-R. A-P-Y-G-R-O-U-P dot com. And click on the link to me. Um, and if they want to do some counseling that way, we can talk about how we can set that up. We talked a little bit about guilt and we talked about laughter. And a lot of times people feel guilty if they feel happy at any time after somebody dies. And it could be years later. I've seen this, and, and I remember. I, I specifically know this because um, recently, on on one of the support groups that I'm a part of on Facebook, somebody asked the question, "Do you feel guilty?" And immediately, people said, "Yeah, I feel guilty. I never want to be happy again." And and I totally disagreed with that there and in other places. I think that my daughter was probably the happiest person I ever knew, and I think my father told the worst one-liners. But whenever I start doing the same puns and bad jokes that my father did, or whenever I start thinking of how my daughter would be singing and dancing most of her life, I feel them very close to me. And I like that. And that's a really interesting phenomenon that happens for people, is I can't laugh because if I laugh, I'm going to be disrespecting that person's life. They're not here to laugh with me. But no, you're actually honoring it, in my opinion. You're honoring the fact that you're going forward 
and you have never forgotten that person. That person will always be very close to you. And you're going to go through the, gee, you know, especially around birthdays and stuff, you know, like this person would be so-and-so age right now. You know, I'm not uh, Pollyanna. I don't think that you can be happy all the time. But I. But it's not it's, wrong. It's, it's, it's not as raw. To, and, and you have to be happy to honor that person. Be sad on, on the days you want to be sad, but, but don't get stuck in that sadness because if you get stuck in that sadness, you're not present for anybody else and you're certainly not even present for yourself. We've pretty much reached the end, so, but I, I want to give you the last thing on this. In 10 seconds, how's Josh and how old is he? Joshua is great. He's 38 years old. He is married to a wonderful woman. They're about to have their 14th anniversary. They have two children, a 10-year-old daughter and a a 3-year-old son. And um, people that don't know that we're related, I can be at events that he, his name comes up and people will say, do you know Josh Fuller? Because he's kind of well-known in this town. And isn't he the most positive person you've ever met in your entire life? Congratulations. You won. You won right there. You won. And that also concludes this episode of Heart Art with Michael. I can't stop giggling. Again, I want to thank Dawn for sharing with us uh, her hope and her story. And I hope that she's brought some of that hope to the people who are listening to us here. Please join me or the Heart to Heart with Michael team in Pal Talk every week following our program. I'll talk with you soon. And remember, until then, it's okay to laugh. Thank you again for joining us. We hope you have gained strength from listening to our program. Heart to Heart with Michael can be heard every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. We'll talk again next time when we'll share more stories. If you would like to continue today's discussion, please join us right after the program in the Hug Podcast Chat Room on Pal Talk. 